I've been here for kind of a really long time, so some of my stories you've heard before. You know, I've told some, but there's just one I'm going to go back and just touch on. It's something that happened to me when I was just 11 years old. I was playing Little League for a team called the Range Hills Rangers. We were really good. And um, the coach was a guy named Mr. Carpenter, and he asked me at one point, he said, hey, would you come to this church, and would you come on this Wednesday night to, to church? And uh, I was like, eh, you know, I don't really know about that. And the deal was, I rode my bike to, to practice, and uh, the church wasn't very far from my house, but by the time everything was over, it was dark, and I had to go through the woods behind my house to get there, and that's where monsters live. Uh, you know, I'm not going to drive through there. So he said this, he said, well, I will put your bike in the back of my truck, and I'll give you a ride home if you'll stay. And he said, it's going to be a movie. And I said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. So I stayed and uh, watched this movie. The movie turned out to be a Billy Graham film. And at the end of the movie, um, Billy Graham comes on the screen and he just shares in just his beautiful, simple way uh, the gospel of Christ. And I prayed to receive Jesus. Uh, at that time in my life. And that was, everybody's got a Billy Graham story, right? But that was my first introduction uh, to that. I've faded away from the Lord for a long time and just lived a really crazy lifestyle until I was 19. I came back to the Lord in a real profound way. And a few years later, got actually to be a counselor at a Billy Graham crusade in Memphis at the Liberty Bowl, which was just full circles. It's just, you know, this thing. And uh, at one point during the training, I got to be in this room, and I was uh, sitting, I was about as far back as from here to Caleb, maybe. I don't know if you don't know who Caleb is, if you're a guest, but, you know, about that, that far away from Billy Graham. And at the end, I know that people were going up, and we didn't have cell phones, we couldn't do selfies, but some people had thought to bring cameras or just to meet him. And you know what I did? I left. I laughed. I, I just, I walked in. I thought, eh, you know, there's a line and everything. And, uh, you know, I just regret so much not getting to meet him. But um, what a powerful influence. I think probably the most powerful Christian, obviously, in our generation, in our lifetime, and for hundreds of years. Um, just what a, what a great guy he was. And we appreciate um, the, the Lord uh, bringing someone like that of his stature. And I pray that we would be able to go forward into the next generation uh, with the gospel. Uh, Doug Sager, who is a local pastor, preached his um, a sermon to, in view of a call for First Baptist Concord right here uh, at Calvary. And then the Lord called him there and was there for many years. And he has passed away. And you know, that, that's just kind of the way of things in life. And, and my time will come and your time will come. Uh, so what, where will that go? What will that, where, where will that lead us? Today, we're going to continue in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's part of a series that we're in the midst of called Reclaim. We actually just have one more week next week. And then we're going to change gears and do something different as we start looking forward to Easter. Uh, but we're going to talk today about restoring and rebuilding and about second chances. I am so glad that I live for and serve a God of second chances. The prodigal son got a second chance. David got a second chance. Saul of Tarsus got a second chance. 
Today we're going to see one of the ways that the nation of Israel got a second chance. You get a second chance. You get a second chance. Since God is in the business of giving people second chances, um, maybe we should be too. So as we talk about this, as we go forward, you might be on the other side of things. Is there anybody that comes to your mind uh, that you could say, you know what, I, I need to give them a second chance. And when even I say that, you know, your, your, your first thought may be, no, no, no. And I'm just going to pray that God would really touch your heart and that you'd be willing to lean into that and give somebody a second chance today. But it may be that you need one. We just need a second chance. Perhaps God is going to speak to you today and to say this, answer this question. If I could get a second chance, I would. What would you do if you knew in your heart of hearts that today God was going to give you a second chance in your life or maybe in just an area of your life and you think, I have so blown this or I've just so walked away or I've so drifted, I'm, just, I'm so disconnected in this area of my life. But if I got a second chance, what's the answer to that question? I hope by the time that we're done, at the end of this lesson today, You'll have an answer for that. A second chance, trust me, because I've been given. Second chances. And it's better than living in regrets and failure. And shame and judgment and condemnation and some of these things you quietly carry that you don't need to. Because God set you free and he wants you to live in freedom. The background to the book of Nehemiah is one that you should be familiar with by now because we've gone through Ezra and then we kind of transitioned right into Nehemiah. Seventy years earlier, the Jews had returned from Israel to Babylon after being there for 70 years as judgment from God. And they rebuilt the temple, you know, and the city began to flourish. The law was brought back in. Ezra was just this really powerful guy that did that. But the walls of the city just continued to be in ruins. And so they were not safe. They were not protected. They were in this really vulnerable, risky place. Because little by little, the sins that had brought that first judgment to Israel had begun to creep back into their lives and took over. So God sent two men. One, I mentioned Ezra, who was a priest. So you got one guy who's in ministry, and this is, this is what he does. And then the other guy was just a layman. He was a cupbearer to the king, which is a place of honor and trust. You had to have a lot of integrity um, to be able to hold a position like that. But he was a guy just out working, and God called these two and did something very beautiful. Now, we've looked at the first chapter and some of the other passages, but I want to look at uh, chapter 2, first three verses to, together today. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence... 
He's a, he, I've never been sad. I've always had a cheerful attitude and a smile on my face. But this day was different. He said, I, I took it up. I gave it to him. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That little phrase that caught my attention as I looked over this passage was that sadness of heart. The king could discern something different, you know, about this guy today. There's a sadness of heart. Nehemiah connected to his emotions and he's grieving this destruction and he can't cover it. And he can't pretend like everything's okay. He can't compartmentalize it. It just begins to, to, to whelm up within him and, and just come up to this place where he can't hide it anymore. And I wanted to give you permission to do that. It is okay to grieve over the destruction in your life. Maybe you've run from that or you've hidden from that or you've you kind of put it in another place. You're trying to think about it or you rationalize it or whatever it is, whatever kind of game you do. I want you to know today you've got permission to grieve over the destruction in your life. In fact, I think if there's godly grief that goes into that, it will deepen your repentance at that next place, that next phase that God just ushers you into you're going to have a deeper, stronger uh, experience and relationship with the, the, the Lord. God will use, and I hope this is a word of hope. I'm not sure how this will come across, but God will use the sadness of your heart to bring you a deeper and fuller joy one day. In verse 4, the king asks, What do you want? He could sense that there was, there was something, there was, and this is Nehemiah's moment. He gets to make this big request. He gets the, to make an ask. You know, Lord, I, I want to ask, I want to ask you this one thing. And here's his answer, because he's put some thought into this. The king said, "What are you requesting?" So I prayed to the Lord of Heaven. God, give me the right words. And here's what he said. And I said to the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting right there beside him. <laughs> I love the Bible. It just kind of throws in details like that. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, uh, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through uh, when I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. Have you ever been asked a question and you think, well, I, just, um, well, I don't know. Wait, let me, let me, let me think a minute. I, you know, Nehemiah was so ready to ask the big question. 
question and to get, you know, this big request. And he knew he probably just had this one shot. You know, he had this, here's this time, this defining moment. What will your request be? If the Lord says to your heart today, what, what do you want? What do you really want? What's your answer? What do you want? Do you want for just your consequences to go away? <laughs> or do you want to be free? Because most of us, when we're in crisis, when you're broke, when you're sick, when you're sad, when you're um, you know, behind, when you're living under guilt or shame, or maybe there's a sin out there, and, you, and what do you want? You just want it to go away, right? You just think, Lord, just take, take this away, and let's just be done with this, and let me skip on to the next thing. I just want out of this. Or are you ready to go deeper and to go to a different place and to ask the right question, to ask the, for the right response because part of being reclaimed is being able to ask not just for this immediate thing that you see on the surface but to go below, to go deeper and say, what is it you really need? And that's where you'll meet the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 13, he um, says this, I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. He's heard about this destruction. He's probably seen it as he's walking by, and he gives it a look, and he's got the big picture. But Nehemiah takes it another step. because you know what? I need to really see this up close. I need to understand for myself how extensive is this destruction and just how how bad is it. I know what I'm asking you to do today is pushing you to a, a, a new place or a different place or somewhere you think, you know what, Dan, I'm avoiding this. And this is what I'm, I'm kind of like trying not to do all the time. And now you're sort of leading and turning me back that, that direction. Yeah, I want you to take a good look at the brokenness and the destruction. You'll see more. I'll just give you a tip, you know, a little note or a hint here the further you go you're going to see more at the closer you get and when you examine it closer as you go forward and that might not be the most pleasant thing but there's healing and there's power there you'll begin to realize how you've held on to distorted beliefs and ideas and old hurtful memories and core messages and traumas and emotions. Some of you have been carrying that junk around since you were a little girl, since you were a young man. And the Lord wants you to, to be free so that you don't stay stuck in shame or guilt with all those you know, those heavy mechanisms that you've used throughout your, you know, your life to deal with those emotions. For some of you, that's led to addictions or it's led to sinful behaviors or it's led to habits or patterns or, or just a way of thinking that part of your heart thinks, you know what, I don't think this is right. This isn't, it's the same thing again and again. I just feel stuck. Well, let me ask you something. What, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to stay there? Because this could be your moment. 
you could make this shift in a way where you see the broken walls. You're not going to hide from that anymore. You kind of get the fact, I'm not going to hide from the destruction. No more hiding, no more secrets, no more telling yourself those stories or those lies or doing this achievement or this behavior. Whatever it is, your go-to is to try to get some relief from that. Nehemiah gained an understanding of the situation. And he was willing to face that. He didn't walk by and he'd tell his friends, you know, those walls aren't so bad. You know, I think we could kind of, maybe we could paint them. Or, you know, we could just learn to live with the low walls, make that kind of a new thing. And, and now he didn't do any of that. He says, you know, you know what? It's bad. It's really bad. Everything's burned up. Everything's tumbled down. It's in ruins. We got to rebuild. We got to start from scratch. He understood because he had made a clear, honest assessment of where he was. And he began to seize this vision for what the future could look like. In his imagination, he could close his eyes and he could see a wall and he could see it. So he gathered all the tools he would need for the job. He surrounded himself with people who knew how to do this and could work with him. He developed a plan to follow and he went to work. It sounds simple. And I know it's more difficult than that sometimes, but basically that's it. But here's what always happens, you know, when you, when you do that. In fact, let me look at verse 17. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us, you could just circle that, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we, that we May, no, may longer suffer this derision. Nehemiah knew that I can't do this by myself. I can't do this alone. And I'm going to encourage you because some of you are keeping secrets and you need to find some partners. You need to get with some people who are going to help you in, in, in that healing. It's not going to happen in isolation. Nehemiah had lots of people with him and they're rebuilding this wall and they're doing it together and they, and they start to work and he's not alone. And if you feel alone, you're not. And you don't have to be. They had never even seen this wall. You know, this all happened, remember, before they moved back, before most of them were even born. And they didn't have photographs. They didn't have anything. You know, they, they couldn't go back and look at their Facebook and go, this is what the wall used to look like. Wasn't that cool? Wasn't that an awesome wall? No, they didn't know. But Nehemiah knew, and he had a vision for this. And I think they began to catch that because that's what happens when you leave that old stuff and you start leaving that old junk and you're willing to say, God, would you show me? Show me how bad it is. Now, Lord, would you show me what's on the other side of that? Would you take me to a place of healing and restoration? Would you reclaim me? And when he begins to do that, then you start getting that vision. And you start seeing what your life can be like. And you do that with people around you. Now, here's what always happens, right? You start moving in that direction. And look at verse 19. Uh, if I can find it in my, in my Bible here, let's see. Um, I found 18, okay, 19. But then Sanballat, the, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, 
um, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, and they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What is this thing you're? What is this thing you're doing? What What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" I mean, they take it from zero to here. I mean, you know, it's just like the Facebook rants you see or, or Twitter. You know, people just go, ah, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You people are crazy. And you, you know, and you, here's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to face destruction. You're going to face opposition. Not everybody's going to see this vision. Not everybody's going to get that. This opposition may come spiritually. You may feel like, wow, I'm just under attack and I just feel this, this something that come against my spirit. It's hard to pray. It's hard to read scripture. I don't want to go to church. I don't want, I don't want to be a part of a community. I, and there's going to be this spiritual attack. You can expect these things, not to, not to be surprised like, wow, Lord, I'm finally kind of pulling towards you and I'm, I'm leaving that and I want to rebuild and I want to see this. But wow, I just feel so this heaviness and this darkness. That's opposition. So it may come spiritually. It may come in your marriage. It may come in your family. It may come with the people you work with, in your neighborhood. They're just going to be real people who come against you and oppose you with that. It's probably going to come. So I just tell you now, in this nice, safe place, and on a Sunday morning, just brace yourself for that and be ready for it. Be ready to be questioned and challenged and doubted and even ridiculed. Stay the course. When you begin to feel that opposition, that may be a clue you're on the right track. I mean, I'd love to tell you it's going to be all sunshine and unicorns and it's just going to be beautiful and, uh, you know, you're just, it's going to be so much fun and it's just going to be clear sailing. Once you make that turn, once you begin to go that way, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but it may, it may or may not be probably you're going to face opposition and that may be an indication, hey, I think I'm on the right track. Nehemiah is the story of a second chance. And today, I hope with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can examine the state of our spiritual walls and begin rebuilding where is necessary. I really do. I pray that today might be a turning point for you. And the, the great thing about building is that it's just one brick at a time. And I told Kevin, I had this great idea. I was going to bring bricks in and have them here and just start doing that. And I realized, oh, that's been done. <laughs> and that didn't turn out so well. And I thought, oh, no, and everybody's going to say, oh, no, not the brick thing again. No, you know what? You just canceled out everything you said. We don't believe anything. So I'm not going to go there. But... It kind of bugs me that that was stolen from me and taken. But, I mean, you know, you, you look at a whole wall, you look at something like that, and you build, and you think it's, it's a wall as high as that. And you think, wow, I don't know if I can build a wall. But when you just hold one brick, and you think, all I got to do is put a brick. One brick's not that heavy. You can do that. And that's all I'm requesting. That's, that's where I'm just saying, pick up the first brick. Okay, let's look at these walls real quickly, just the function and the purpose about this and what I think they they spiritualize for us. Um, Friday, we were in the National Park, and we just went about as far as Sugar Land. You know, we didn't go that far in. But I took a picture. I'll show you this. Um, This is that wall. If you go in and to the left, one of the first trails, it's an easy trail. 
And I'd been reading about this. Remember the grant uh, back like in 1930 or something when they saw people are just cutting down all the trees and they're farming and they're, they're taking all this land and it's just disappearing real quickly. So we had the idea, you know what, let's just, let's don't do that. Let's move everybody out and let's establish a park. And that's what they did. And now we have the Great Smoky Mountains. And this is beautiful. I think it's, is it like the most visited park in the U.S.? Am I just making that up? No, everybody's nodding. So, it, I mean, it's just, it, was a, it was just a beautiful thing. Uh, so as we're walking along, I see this, and I read this little, you know, this sign about this, that this was a wall. When all the people moved, and they all went into Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, and instead of farming, they opened T-shirt shops and pancake houses and, you know, those rides and go-kart places and the factory outlet mall, they began to do things that are a lot more profitable, and they just left this. But at one time, this was a wall, and now look at it. That's what it is, and that's the story. I think that's something kind of like what Nehemiah must have seen and thought, I don't think that's going to protect us. I don't think that's going to do much of anything. But then you get the idea. In his imagination, he began to see something like this. And he thought, you know what? We could build up a wall, a strong wall, not broken rubble. So what does a wall do? Well, first of all, walls define a space. That's what they declared. This is a space. This is our space. That's what walls do. I mean, you walked inside this building and you thought, I'm inside a church. If you go to the post office and you walk in, if you go to the mall, if you go to, you know, wherever, you, you get inside your home and you think, okay, we're in, this is, we're, we're in our house. What does that mean? It means you're inside the walls. It's a place with walls. The outside, you know, kind of tells you what it is and walls define the function and the purpose of a thing. This is the kitchen well, what's on the other side of that wall? Oh, that's the bathroom. This is the baby's bedroom. This is wall set an atmosphere. This is a Christian home. It's the walls that you have in your spiritual life that define whether or not Christ is there. It's the walls you have that set the atmosphere. Secondly, you know, walls limit access. I mean, wasn't that the whole reason that somebody would, would put walls up is like as a place of safety? You know, well, you can't get in because we've got these walls and we're locked in and the gates and so we're safe here. It's a place of safety. Walls keep things out that you want kept out. That's what fences do. That's what walls do. And then walls provide protection. They protect us, like from the elements, you know, the wind or the rain. There's a place I preach in sometimes in Latin America, and it's this beautiful place. But three of the walls were open. And so when it rained or when things happened, it's just a real vulnerable thing. So walls protect us, and walls set boundaries. Your spiritual walls limit behavior and they kind of prescribe what activities can happen and where those things can take place. They give us guidelines, kind of like how um, roads, you know, keep us, uh, or the barriers on each side of a road, you know, keeps us going. Even the stripes on the road, that's sort of a walk uh, idea where it gives us those boundaries that set us free. Walls declare ownership. Um, 
you, know, you say, well, welcome to this place. You're inside now. This is, you know, you ever go through, like if you go to Atlanta, you know, go around like Alpharetta, or if you go to New York and you're driving along, all of a sudden there's a toll booth, and you kind of resent it a little bit because you think, oh, I don't want to pay, you know. But you pay, because why do they, how can they do that? Because it's there. They own that, you know. It, it declares ownership. This is the Riley home. This is the, you know, it it gives it a specific identity. Walls show that something is owned. This is not a public space. This is not an open space. It's an owned space. Having spiritual walls show that you belong to God. And you live differently than the world does sometimes. And those are the proofs that you belong to him. Those are your walls. So now you've got this basic idea, this understanding of what these walls represented, not just for the Jewish people, but for us. When we're living behind broken down walls, do you see how vulnerable we are and how dangerous that is? When a wall is broken down, it means that the enemy has gained access that you're open. You know, if you're, you leave your front door open like people used to, and you think, well, no, that puts us in. Oh, did I forget to lock the house? Oh, did I let the garage door down? Why would you be concerned about that? Because you know, oh, now we're open. Now we're, you see, some of your walls have so broken down that now you're at risk. And the enemy can get a breakthrough in your life. And I know when we think about breakthrough, when I say that word, it usually means victory. Oh, I had a big breakthrough today. But in this case, I'm talking about defeat. Your walls have been breached and the enemy has gotten in. And when that happens, it means that you lose. You have this loss of identity. It means you're focusing now all your energy on repairing and maintaining and trying to keep this together rather than growth and expansion. And some of you live there. And you've lived there for months or for years or even decades. Just trying to maintain. Just trying to manage it. If you stop managing your sin and stop trying to manage the relationships around you and stop trying to manipulate and to control that and just say, Lord... I'm just going to give you this access and I'm just going to rebuild these walls in my life where you have ownership of me. Something beautiful is going to happen. And one of the first things is, is that your identity is going to begin to be returned to you. And as that happens, you're going to be able to focus on other people and, and moving out instead of just always thinking about yourself. And your ability to resist has been greatly diminished and maybe almost non-existent. So, you know, that, that sin you do and you think, ah, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to do that. And then the next time that opportunity comes up and the next time that temptation and you just fold. You know, and, you just, and then later you're, you go through that whole cycle of shame and you're mad again at yourself. And you're just thinking, ah, oh, did, how did that happen? See, because, you're resi- because there's no wall there. There's no wall. So when the rebuilding of the wall begins to happen in your life, You become such a safe person. Without that, your boundaries are going to continually be in the process of decay and ruin. 
Now, I don't know when that wall was built that I showed you, you know, probably, let's say it was built like in 1910 or 1900, and, and it was a pretty good wall up until everybody just moved away, and when, when that became an abandoned place, it just began, and it wasn't the next day. You know, go back out the next day, and you think, wow, still, wall's still in pretty good shape. You come back in a week, and you think, I can tell a little difference, but no, it's basically all right. A couple of rocks maybe fell off a month and a year goes by. And what happens is there's this deterioration over time. And you're not even aware of it because it's so subtle. And some of you have moved from this place and moved from this place. And you couldn't really tell when it happened. But now there's this decay in this ruin. Boundaries are our convictions and our rules of life. Let me give you an example. Let, let's say that there's a piece of property next to your house and a company buys that, that property and it just sits there for a little while. That's a toehold. You know, they're just there. You don't, you know, oh, what is, I don't know. Somebody bought that property. The sign's gone. And then they build a factory on it. And you go, oh, well, we didn't know they were going to do that. And this is uncomfortable. We don't like a factory being right there. See, now they've got a stronghold. And then this factory begins saying, oh, we need all the resources. So they divert all the water <laughs> in the, from the, and, they th- and you think, oh, they're taking all the resources and they don't have that anymore and they just leave you with nothing. That's a stranglehold. That's what possessions and activities or a sinful habit can do to your spiritual life. It just sucks up all your time and all your energy. And we want to protect that spiritual space in our life. So you've got to have walls. And borders and these, this access and these, here's the, this is a denied space in our life. Because if you don't do that, disaster is going to come. And that's what the problem is, is that people lose their walls. They lose their boundaries. Jerusalem was in ruin because it didn't have definable borders. So we need these borders, we need these boundaries. And I think we're going to start here in two just real critical areas of our life. One, what I'm going to call sacred spaces. And the other is in our convictions. By sacred spaces, I simply mean the time that I allocate to God. The time that I'm really focused on Him. And and then these are the things, you know, that if you're not careful, will get crowded out and pushed out because there's all this other stuff that tries to hoard your time. Does your bedroom look like that or your closet or your garage or your basement? You just put something down there and you think it's not such a big deal. Just leave it there. You, just throw, you throw one shirt on the bed and next week, you know, you think, I'm just going to throw those jeans on the bed. And, and after a while, what happens to all that stuff? It just start, you ever open a drawer and look at it and think, what is all this junk in here? And you open the next drawer and that's what happens. You see, it just slowly begins to accumulate like that. And all of a sudden, it's just junk, and it's so distracting, and you can't use these spaces for what they were intended to. I think sometimes we're not careful that sports and entertainment and family events and baby showers and hobbies and television and the Internet and the pursuit of money, especially the pursuit of money, all of that, it just begins to get inside these borders of your sacred space and your personal prayer time and your devotion and your worship and your community and church. All of that just keeps getting pushed to the edges. I visited a home of someone who was a hoarder, and they just had newspapers and magazines and old stuff, and it was just so, it was so everywhere that they had created paths. So you just, you just walk in these little paths to specific places. But they had gotten so used to it because it just happened over time 
they didn't really understand how crowded and closed in that was. Don't you want to be free? Don't you feel like sometimes that happens in our spiritual life? We think, wow, my devotional time, my time with the Lord, my prayer life, I, it's just I was so crowded and I'm just, it's, everything's gotten bumped. Jesus told this parable about the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches and how all of that just chokes out the word and makes it unfruitful. It doesn't make it non-existent. It just makes it unfruitful. And if the, if the word is unfruitful in your life, it could be because, I think it probably is in this context, that you just let that get choked out by all these other things. So there's a deceitfulness there that you've been tricked into making all this other stuff priority in your life. Well, I can't do that, or I can't, I've got to, I got to go do this and this. And then the more stuff you have to pay for, the more you have to work for, the more things you've got to manage and all of that, uh, the less sacred space you have for the Lord. So let me ask you a couple of personal questions, and we're done. Uh, and I'm just trying to. To sort of take the cover off and to help you to examine the damage, you know, to get up close to the burned gates and the destroyed walls and, you know, to think, I really want to be honest as I assess this. So how are your devotions going? How's your quiet time? For some of you, the first answer would have to, you just, just pop up. You know what? I don't, think, I don't even have one. I haven't had one for days or weeks or months or that's not even part of my lifestyle anymore. How's your prayer life? I mean, really, not just the quick ones that you say over your cheeseburger, your taco, you know, and those, that, yeah, but really just the, the, the quality time, that intimate time where you get to have this conversation with the Lord. What about the compromises in your life and this middle ground that you've given up? Have you let go of sacred space to the enemy and after a while just decided, okay. And we've got this border collie, and, and she loves to sleep on beds just like we do, but we don't like her to sleep on our beds because she sheds and everything. And, and we just guard everything, and we close doors. But there's one bed, and I don't want to say whose bed it is but because he's in the room. Um, but she gets up on that bed, and sometimes we walk by and go, yeah, you know what, you win. Because she's so insistent. I mean, she, we, can, we can usher her out of there every day for the last 12 years. And the minute we leave the house, she goes, everybody gone? Okay, time to go to bed. And she, just, she gets right back in there. And so after 12 years, you walk by going, you know what? Bed's yours. You know, you're okay. And some of us have done that with sinful behaviors or patterns or habits or thoughts or these, this, this mental attitude. And you just think, you know what? I just give in to that. Have you given up sacred space to the enemy? What are you willing to trade in order to get what you want in life? What is it you really want? Will you let go of some of that stuff? What is it you value? What is it, honestly, come on, be honest, what is it that really determines your priorities? And then convictions. And that's what you believe in your heart of hearts. Does that stay buried does that stay put away? Or would you be willing to risk actually living by your genuine convictions? Now, I loved Ashley's testimony. And she goes, mentally, I believed all of this. All the way up through my life, I believed this. Until I was 18 years old. Yeah, I could check every box. 
but it wasn't the conviction of my heart. What about you? Let me ask you some questions regarding your convictions. Are your boundaries under attack? Probably, and they should be. You know, some people have those invisible. There's a guy in my neighborhood who's got an invisible fence, and his dogs always come running to the edge. Scares me to death. And I'm walking along, and then they stop because there's this invisible fence right there. Do you have these invisible fences, or has it gotten moved? What are your convictions based on? The latest rant on social media or what this person said or that? or Is it, is it grounded in Scripture? Hey, as a pastor, God has called me, he's commanded me to, to teach you to obey all these things that Jesus commanded. And it's not just because that's my job. It's like, yeah, somebody needs to shut you down and somebody needs to remind you and be the bad guy or that voice. That's not it at all. It's because I know that, that our, our morals and the things that we live on, if they're not based on what Scripture says, you're headed whether you feel right or wrong or not, you're, you're going to a dangerous place and your walls are falling down. So are you ready to be honest about your broken walls? And will you take that first brick this morning and start to work? Just a brick. That's all I'm asking. Will you begin rebuilding your sacred place, and your convictions. Your sacred places got broken down and your convictions got all burned up. Will you begin today and pick up a brick and say, no, I'm not letting you in anymore. I'm starting with a brick. I'm going to build there. Let's do this. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's just sing this song together. And as we do, you may need to make an affirmation, an agreement with the Holy Spirit, whatever he brings to your mind and says, this is your brick. This is where you are. And let's watch how the Holy Spirit begins to rebuild these walls in our lives. Lord Jesus,